It's great to be here with you this morning. This is actually uh, the second time that I've spoken at this church. Probably six or seven years ago, my wife and I came. We were still missionaries in South Africa, and we were able to join you for a Sunday. So I can actually say it's great to be back with you, because this isn't the first time. Uh, And as Nathan said, uh, I did spend a number of years in missions. I grew up in Lancaster County. I grew up at the worship center, and when I was 18 years old, I left uh, this area to go into missions. I served with Youth at the Mission. And so I actually left this area for 25 years and only recently came back. Uh, during the last 11 and a half or 12 years of those 25 years that I was gone, we spent living in South Africa. So not only were we out of this small little area of Lancaster, of Lancaster in central Pennsylvania, we were out of the country. And uh, we were serving there. We were happy there. Um, our kids grew up there. It, South Africa had become home. Uh, we, did, we didn't see anything that was going to change. In fact, it's actually an interesting story that we were asking the Lord uh, in just what was next in our season of South Africa? What, uh, what did he have for us after our first 11 and a half years? And we were asking questions about our ministry, about our family, and uh, about uh, February of, I guess it would have been 2017, we felt like God said, okay, you're here. We're gonna stay, we're gonna remain. We're gonna, our kids are gonna go to high school in South Africa. We are going to plant ourselves here even longer than we already did. So we thought decision's done, things are settled. One week after making that decision to remain in South Africa, I got an email from the pastor of Worship Center, Matt Milan, and he asked if he could Skype with us, which I thought he's kind of the new pastor coming in to Worship Center, uh, taking over for Sam Smucker. It's probably a good move on his part to reach out to the missionaries, get to know them a little bit. And as we began to have this conversation, he very quickly said, I actually am not just checking in, I, I want to offer you a job. I want, want to know, would you ever consider being the missions pastor at Worship Center? Now, I'm thinking, we just decided as a family, we literally just decided one week ago that we're here. This is crazy. We've been kind of thinking through this and asking these questions for a few years, and we made that call, and I I said, Matt, I I don't think that's going to happen. We're here. We're settled. We love it here. This is our kids' home, but I'll pray about it. Famous last words when you say, but I'll pray about it. So uh, I, I gave him a 10% chance that we would do it. I said, you should probably ask other people. You should probably invite someone else. But give me a week. We'll pray about it. And we'll get back to you. But probably not going to happen. He thinks I said 0% chance. Um, I think I said 10%. But uh, my wife and I, we started talking about it. We began to pray. And very quickly, we started just, at, just going, this is strange. We just decided We just made this commitment, but this answers the what's next question. This answers the what do we do with our kids question for high school. This just answers so many things. And from getting that email to two days later, 48 hours later, my wife and I completely knew that this is what God had for us, that we were to come back to the United States 
that we are to come back to central Pennsylvania and that God was calling us to be missionaries in our own country. Um, wasn't what was expected. And uh, so that was in February of 2017. We, 100 days later, we found ourselves back in my hometown. Hadn't been in my hometown for 25 years. My wife is from Seattle, so Seattle and central Pennsylvania are just a little bit different. Uh, and so she was in a new place. Our kids had only known South Africa. Uh, my oldest was one when we went to South Africa. Now he's 13. My youngest, we adopted from South Africa. So we took our entire family and we made this huge move and we found ourselves at home. We found ourselves at home in Pennsylvania. And everybody's like, welcome home. And we're like, this doesn't feel like home. Uh, it, this is not what we expected. And for me, I kept saying, this is not what I remembered. That things are different. Things are, have changed. And so what I actually want to share a little bit with you today in light of that is that as I've kind of returned to the United States after being away from a while, and as I've returned to central Pennsylvania, I want to share a few observations that I have as someone who is a bit of a stranger here. So I know kind of this area, but I'm also feeling like a foreigner in, in my own area. And I want to share a couple of observations and challenge us out of the scripture with some of the things that I think we have an opportunity to engage in uh, as we do missions that doesn't necessarily require a passport, that missions can actually happen right here. My wife and I, we truly feel like God has called us to a new missionary calling. That we're not coming home. We didn't come home because we ran out of money. We didn't come home because we couldn't take the foreign field. Like all, all these reasons that missionaries often return home. We came home because God asked us to. And honestly, we didn't want to come home. This wasn't where we would have chosen to live. We wanted to stay in South Africa. And in many ways, it felt like, God, why do I have to leave the mission field for America? Why are you doing this? I, I just don't understand. In fact, even after people heard that we took the job, uh, they, they would ask me, so wh what is your plan to, to enhance missions at Worship Center? I'm also the, uh, the local community outreach pastor there. What's your plan to engage, help engage us in the community? And I said, I don't know. I don't have a plan because I wasn't planning on coming here. You know, I didn't go to school and write a PhD dissertation on how to be a missions pastor. I never considered that I was going to do this. So I had to come back and I had to come back as a missionary. I had to come back and I had to look with eyes and observe what is happening here and how can we make an impact. So some of the things that I'm seeing, they're, they're fresh in the sense of I'm just trying to figure out what is going on in this place and how can we make an impact for the kingdom of God. So it's kind of, that's kind of the backstory for some of these observations that I want to share with you a little bit today and hopefully encourage us and challenge us. So my first thing that, that I noticed when I came back to this area, the first thing I noticed is that the world is flat. Okay, now this is not a conspiracy theory uh, that I'm against the, the round earth concept. But what I mean by the world is flat is 
This is actually a term that Thomas Friedman, a New York Times columnist, popularized uh, as he described globalization. But what I mean by this through the missionary perspective is that the issues that we find here are now the same as the issues that we find overseas. When I started in missions 25 years ago, most of the typical missionary issues were over there, often some distant land, that poverty was a, a, was a foreign concept, uh, sickness and disease was a foreign concept, war, uh, racism, uh, human trafficking was something that happened over there. Well, I'm pretty sure that you realize, just as I realize, that the world is now flat. That these same issues that were historically missionary issues where we went over there to help, now we find them right in our own backyard. Human trafficking is present in our area. We've got issues of poverty. We've got all these different issues of need. And they're not just over there anymore. They're right here. And I started to have this revelation that missions doesn't require a passport anymore to cross international borders. We can actually engage in missions right outside our door. And that really, we should be engaging in missions in this way. Uh, being a missions pastor in Lancaster County, I did a little bit of research into Lancaster and just some of the issues. And I know we're not in Lancaster County, and I know sometimes... Uh, saying that this is Lancaster County is almost offensive up here. So I don't want to do that. I know that's a little bit of a weird bubble just south of you. But I'm pretty sure if these things are happening in Lancaster County, there's going to be similar things happening up in this area. Uh, there's some studies that were done about poverty in Lancaster County. And now we have 30% of people in Lancaster County living in poverty. Lancaster County is supposed to be this wealthy area, affluent, you know, the breadbasket of this area with all the farms. 30% of people living in poverty. And the number for children is even higher. There's 43% of children living in poverty. And poverty is even having a different face. Historically, poverty has been very urban, city-centered. The new kind of poverty is actually very rural. That uh, as we connect with the different school districts in the area, we find out that many, many children in the school districts are living below the poverty line. They don't necessarily know where regular meals are going to be coming from. Things have changed. The world is flat. It is not as it used to be. That missions is not just as you cross international borders anymore. There is needs right here at home. The second thing I noticed... Uh, is as I came back after uh, all these years being gone from America and even more time being gone from central Pennsylvania, America and central Pennsylvania looks different. If you go around now, it just things don't look the way they used to. People have changed. Uh, our demographics have changed. When we brought our children over here, they... Uh, obviously, I come from Africa, and my adopted son is black. He's from South Africa. So we also knew that we were bringing uh, a white child and a black child back to central Pennsylvania. And so we were looking for a school district that had some integration. We didn't want either one of them to kind of be the one who stands out. We wanted to see some diversity. Now, I had a picture of diversity in central Pennsylvania from 25 years ago. And I was stunned at the diversity that we now have in our schools. 
that we prayed, the thing we prayed about the most in coming back is which school district should our children go to? Where do you want us to send our kids? And that's where we'll try to buy a house. And God showed us what school district. And when we uh, started learning more about the school district, we knew that God put us in this district. That the school that our kids go to, there are 40 languages spoken at home in this school district. 40! Most of us can't even name 40 languages, right? But there's 40 different home languages spoken at a local school district in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. This is not the same Lancaster that I left. This is radically different. America looks incredibly different in its, its makeup, in its diversity, in the things that we see happening. In fact, we're seeing people from all over the world come into the United States. And in many ways, we have to think about what does this mean? How do, how do we engage this way that we are not monoculture anymore? We are multicultural from peop, people with all, from all over the world. And as I began to think about this, I realized that there was something interesting happening. And it reminded me of a passage in Acts. In Acts chapter 11, verse 19, uh, we, we are introduced to something that happened before that uh, when persecution came upon the early church, God actually scattered the Christians through the vehicle of persecution. Now, the enemy or those opposed to the gospel wanted to stamp out Christianity, but persecution spread the believers and the gospel spread. We see this in Acts 19, or excuse me, Acts 11, 19. Says, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. That in the book of Acts, persecution scattered the faithful and the kingdom spread. Okay, so sometimes persecution actually results in positive things when the gospel spreads to the ends of the earth. But something is interesting happen, is happening in the world today. That as you look around the world, in our country, but also abroad, people are being scattered once again. Only this time, I don't know that it's just the Christians that are being scattered. Many times now, the people that are being persecuted or the people that are being forced to flee or forced to go to different places, they are actually people from some of the most difficult countries on the planet to be a missionary in. People, the persecution that's happening in the Middle East or in places like Syria and Lebanon, war-torn nations like Congo and, and different places where people are moving across the planet, we are actually having an opportunity to, as these people move, in many ways they are going to countries that have some kind of a Christian history. And there's an opportunity for some of these people to hear the gospel as they are being scattered. I think we have a little bit of the reverse of Acts happening. That in this case, it's not just the believers that are being scattered that spreads the gospel. Now there are some unbelievers that are being scattered and it's actually presenting us with an opportunity. An opportunity to have people hear the gospel. Do you know that, especially for Muslims, a Muslim hearing the gospel in a Muslim country is a very small percentage of likelihood. But the percentages of Muslims hearing the gospel and coming to faith goes up dramatically when they cross the border of their home country and they go into a different place. 
Could it be that God, I don't think he's causing all these atrocities to happen, but could it be that God would love to use what is already happening to have the ability to have the gospel preached to those who otherwise would have no choice and no ability to hear it? I think we actually have an incredible opportunity in the diversity that we see in America and in other countries of the world that God is actually bringing people to us to hear the gospel. Is this an obstacle or is this an opportunity? And I know when we talk about these things, there's always some political undertones. And I'm not here to make any political statements because our job inside the walls of the church is not to make political statements. Our job is to have gospel responses to what we see happening before us. Yes, we vote. Yes, all these things are important. But the politicians decide politics. The church, our job is not to ask questions on how people got here or why they're here. Our job is to say, you're here. I don't care how you got here. You're here. I'm going to love you. And I'm going to share the gospel to those that God has brought across my path. I know there's political things that are connected to this. And again, let's, I, I really hope you can hear me that I'm not trying to make radical political statements. I'm just trying to say, are we going to love people? Are we going to address these needs that God is bringing to us? America looks different. And this could be a threat or this could be an opportunity, depending how we look at it. Uh, and I would still obviously encourage a international missions expression. We have to do international missions. I am a missions pastor. I will continue to engage people overseas. But I think we have a dual opportunity now that we continue to engage people overseas, but we also can engage people right here at home in our own backyard. Acts chapter 1.8 is one of the famous verses that tells us to be witnesses and to share the gospel. And it says that we need to be his witnesses in Jerusalem. First and foremost, in our, our immediate area. In Judea and Samaria, the next range. So our counties, our states, our country. And to the ends of the earth. There's not, there's not a, a one that is better than the other. It's, it's all. It's all of these that we can engage in. Third thing that I see happening as I come back to America and I just observe things. I also have been surprised by how divided the America that I came back to is. It's taken me off guard. And I mean, I was seeing things on Facebook and the, the political discourse here is world news. So we were hearing the political things over in South Africa as well. So it's not that I was ignorant or I was living in a jungle somewhere and I didn't hear anything. But I have to say, the amount and the degree and the depth of the division has surprised me. As well as the inability to have conversation anymore. The division has gotten so strong that unless you're 100% with me, you're against me. And it's one side or the other. And we seem to have lost an ability to have conversation, to have dialogue, to have discourse around these different issues. Obviously, the political divide is massive. We live in a divided country. It's, it's basically 50-50. And what I'm actually also realizing is we have a lot of different political opinions within the body of Christ. When I left uh, 25 years ago, there was a, a much more of one, one 
way of thinking within the body of Christ. And I think now some of the issues have gotten so complex, we have to realize we have differences of opinion sitting in this room. Are we going to embrace that? Are we going to engage in that? Or are we going to fight that and war against it? It's a challenge. And I think this has surprised me just how radically different and this division has been. We, when we came back, within two weeks after we came back, we were greeted by a slap in the face of reality that the, uh, the events in Charlottesville happened. The radical racial events that happened in Charlottesville. And from my perspective, I am bringing a white son and a black son back to this country. And I'm going, God, what am I doing to my kids if this is where we are? Uh, shortly after that, we heard of a Ku Klux Klan rally just in southern Lancaster County. And I'm like, this isn't just out there or in some other place in the country. This is right here. And it was just like, oh, my word, what, what planet am I on? Because this is not the country that I remembered it to be. But in many ways, division and a difference of ideas is it's actually not that new. You know, back even in the first century when the Gospels were written, there was a lot of different political opinions. There was a lot of different uh, opinions of how things were to be walked out. And in many ways, I think the the Good Samaritan parable has a fresh application to us today, even in greater ways than maybe it did 10 years ago. And I think there, there are some challenges that we can look at in this. So if you want to turn with me to Luke chapter 10, I'm not going to read the entire parable. I'm just going to point out a few things of a story that we are very familiar with generally. That in Luke chapter 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan it's actually told in response to a conversation that Jesus has with a lawyer, with, with a religious leader. And in verse 25 of chapter 10, just to give you the context here, uh, the lawyer asks Jesus, he says, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Then he goes on to say, What's written in the law? Have you done it? He summarizes it a little bit in verse 27. You shall love the, law, the Lord your God with all your hearts, with all your soul, with all your strength, your mind, and your, and your neighbor as yourself. He said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But in verse 29, this religious person who is living a good religious life, according to Jesus, he asks him one more question. And he says in verse 29, desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? That Jesus said, love God. And he said, okay, I'm doing, I'm doing pretty good at that. But he said, also love your neighbor. And it wasn't as, just as simple for Jesus to say this. And he goes, okay, I'll love it. Who exactly is my neighbor? And how am I to love them? And what Jesus does then is he tells this parable of the Good Samaritan. And we know that uh, in this parable, there was a man who was robbed and he was left by the side of the road. He was in great need. And several people passed him by. Uh, the religious leaders of the day passed him by. And so you would say like the pastors or the really good Christians or, you know, the every Sunday church going kind of person. They passed him by. Now, I know that these religious leaders had some good reasons why they passed him by. They were probably busy like many of us are. Sometimes I wonder if we're too busy to actually respond to needs when God presents them. 
sometimes we're so busy that, you know what, I'm off to do my most important thing and I think we may miss the opportunity that God's put right in our path. In, in, uh, for the Jew as well to, to come in contact, in the first century, they were afraid of kind of becoming unclean. And so there could have even been some of those thoughts that if I stop and I hurt this man, he's, he's uh, or if I, excuse me, if I stop and help this man, uh, I might become unclean. So there could have even been some fear as one of the emotions there or some of the wanting to focus on the religion rather than actually what God was challenging them to do. And then in this story, Jesus picks the most unlikely of people to respond in the most godly of ways. It wasn't the religious leader. It wasn't the most respected people in the culture. It wasn't even those who were you know, considered to have all the answers. He picks a Samaritan. Now, the historical background here is Samaritans were not well-liked. They were considered, you know, to, to be an offshoot, that they weren't actually really the ones who had the understanding. He picked the most unlikely person to demonstrate the greatest degree of love and answering the question, how are you a good neighbor? You know, sometimes I wonder, especially a lot since I've come back to the United States, I wonder if Jesus told this parable to us today in the United States, I don't, he wouldn't use a Samaritan because we, we don't quite identify with that. We don't get that. I wonder who he would use today as the most unlikely of people to respond in the best way. I think if he told this parable today, the people who would be passing by the person in need would be people that probably look a lot like us. They would be people who are dressed nicely, have some decent money in their bank account, you know, that are affluent. We, if it's in America, it would probably be the white evangelicals. Let's just be honest. It would probably be that. And who might he use to kind of shock us and wake us up? I could totally see him telling this parable and using it in the term that someone dressed in Muslim garb actually responds in a better way than someone who's a Christian. Wouldn't that be shocking? I think that would be something that could get our attention. What does it mean to love our neighbors? When this religious man said, who is my neighbor? Jesus responded with this story that basically shocked him and showed him that someone else who doesn't, isn't even following the same God you follow, someone else responded in a more Christ-like way than you. Challenge for us, church, are we going to have a gospel response to our neighbors, to those who God has brought in our paths? Or are we going to elevate culture? Or are we going to elevate politics? Or are we going to elevate something else to a greater degree? The gospel response has to be our first response. Who is our neighbor? It's the people that God has brought across our paths. It's awful quiet out there. I had a, uh, an incident happen a few years ago before we actually moved back here. We were here on a visit, uh, just back to see our families. And I went out jogging one day, which in and of itself is a rare occasion. But I went out jogging, and uh, as I was jogging along, I actually, in my parents' neighborhood, I saw ahead of me that there was a Muslim woman walking towards me. And at first, I was like, whoa, there's the Muslim lady. Like, this is different. This is not... I'm not used to seeing Muslims in my parents' neighborhood. 
And uh, she was, you know, in, she had her headdress on and she was, I mean, she was obviously a Muslim woman. She was an older woman. And here I come, a white American male, huge imposing stature as well. <laughs> and I come plodding towards her. And I kid you not, as soon as she saw me, she, she, she kind of cowered. She, I saw her immediately tense up. She got off the sidewalk and she just took on this defensive position. Like, what is this white American male going to, how is he going to respond to me? And I was so just taken back by her, her response that is obviously a conditioned response. What has taught her as she's lived here that when there is a white American male coming towards her that she should feel threatened? And as I saw her, I just, I slowed down and I looked her right in the eye and I just said, what a beautiful morning. Isn't this amazing? And isn't it so nice? And you, you literally, there was a look of shock on her face that I was just had a normal human being conversation with her. And she relaxed and she said, yes, it's such a beautiful morning. I said, have a wonderful day. And I kept going. I didn't preach the gospel. I didn't, uh, you know, talk about the differences between Christianity and Islam. I just treated her like a human being. And even that, you could see it softened. And if we would simply treat people like human beings, how much more would that open the door for the gospel conversations? America looks different. Is this a threat or is this an opportunity? The fourth thing that I've noticed as I've been back, and this is my final point this morning, is I have been so amazed by the prevailing culture or the prevailing spirit, if you want to use a, a, a spiritual word, that I see in this country, that the prevailing spirit here is fear. And it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. You know, I just, I can't, I come from uh, 12 years in South Africa, which is statistically one of the most dangerous countries on the planet. The murder rate in South Africa is number two in the world. The rape rate is number one. Regularly, we would have friends and, and coworkers and people we know just have horrific things happen to them. But I can tell you the truth that I've experienced more fear in the 18 months that I've been back in America than I did in 12 years in South Africa. Why? It makes no sense. The, the statistics are totally out of proportion when you look at the crime stats in South Africa compared to here. Why would I experience more fear here? But I think that this culture, it is saturated with an attitude of fear. And there's something at work that we have to be aware of and we have to fight against or it's actually going to cost us as a church. That if we submit to this cultural spirit of fear, we're going to miss out. And we see it everywhere. We see it in the way that we parent now, how parenting is different. We invent terms now like helicopter parenting. What we ne parents never let the kids out of their sight because they're afraid of the big bad world out there. Parenting has changed. Kids have changed. Kids aren't kids anymore. Kids don't go out and do what kids used to do because even the kids themselves, they want to stay home and look at life on a screen because of the big bad world out there. They're not even just going to youth group and things like they used to. Where is this coming from? Now, I know there's some things that we need to be more aware of, of course. 
You know, and I'm not saying that all caution or security or wisdom is wrong, but I think we often, in the name of this, we tip over and we're controlled by a spirit of fear. The political discourse is saturated with fear on both sides. There is not one side that specializes in fear. Everybody specializes in fear. It's in our media. It's in every single thing that we see. I, I, I'm confident that many people across this country, they cast votes a few weeks ago, and one of the primary motivations for who they voted for or didn't vote for was fear. Fear of who will be in power or fear of who might be in power. We are controlled by the spirit of fear. We're afraid of violence in churches and schools like never before. My kids actually had reason at sometimes in South Africa to fear violence in their schools. There was an incident uh, that is crazy for me to even think about where they had a school van that was going to a sporting event and they went through some gang infested territory and the back window of the school van was shot out at, in a gang crossfire. And the kids come home and they're just laughing and telling stories about, yeah, the school van got its windows shot out. Oh, it just because it was normal, which I know there's some issues with that. Um, I, I do realize that. But that was where they came from. And they didn't have fear. They come here and they're having nightmares about school shootings. What is going on? There's something at work that is bigger than us. Something that is not logical. Something that doesn't make sense. And I think we have to identify this. We have fear of change. I am pointing out to us that things are different here, that this area and, and in this country looks different, and that change can invoke fear. Because, you know, change, everybody likes things the way it used to be. If we could just get back to the good old days. And we have to ask, well, what good old days? Slavery? You know, it depends how you say that. Getting back to the good old days can be heard in very different ways. Change brings insecurity. And I think all around the world, it's not just in America. I think it's especially true in America. But all around the world, fear of the foreigner is at an all-time high. It's becoming so difficult to do missionary work because visas are getting more difficult. In this fear of the foreigner that's sweeping the world, I'm concerned for the future of missions. Because statistically, the North is becoming the missions field. In the history of missions, missions went from North, North America and Europe, South. Okay? Well, North America and Europe are becoming increasingly post-Christian. And Africa and Southern Asia and Latin America are becoming increasingly Christian. The future of missions is going to come from the South to the North. And if we have all these fears of people that don't look like us and don't talk like us, we are actually giving away our future because we're going to not allow people from the South to come and be missionaries in the North. It's an unintended consequence that we might not consider when we're afraid or we have fear of change of people that don't look like us or don't talk like us. You know, I've journeyed with fear in my life as well. Uh, I told you some of the things about South Africa, but, but even in my own life, when I was a young leader, my first leadership experience, uh, three days into my first leadership experience, I was attacked uh, along with a friend by a group of people who lived in that community. They were on drugs, uh, so they were very aggressive, and they attacked my friend and I. He was stabbed. I was uh, 
knocked unconscious and beat up. Both of us went to the hospital and I was a young 22 year old new leader, three days into my first leadership experience. And all of a sudden I was met with this overwhelming sense of fear. For days and weeks, I had to choose. I'm going back into this area. I'm going back into this community where these guys beat me up because it could happen again. For years afterwards, I struggled to walk at night because I kept thinking it's going to happen again. Fear is a real thing. After I got married even, and then we moved to South Africa, and I knew these crazy crime stats, of course, fear kind of picks up again in my life. And I would be looking at people coming towards me and I would have suspicion and I'd be concerned, what's going to happen? Am I going to get attacked again? Is my family going to be okay? I'm moving my family there to the rape capital of the world. Is my wife going to be okay? I had these thoughts all the time. My wife didn't really have these thoughts. You know, we'd be walking down the street and I'd be starting to get nervous and she'd just be boldly walking where I was afraid to go. That feels very manly when that happens to you. Fear is a real thing. And fear is a journey. You know, we can and we serve a God who supernaturally delivers people. We do, we can do that. And sometimes God can supernaturally deliver us from things like fear. But there is also many times throughout Scripture that God works in the process and that He walks, works in a journey. And I have gone through a many, many year journey to walk through fear. And it still raises its head sometimes. But I've seen that God has taken me on this journey. A few weeks ago, I was in Mexico visiting some of our missionaries. And I was in cities in Mexico that are controlled by drug cartels. And it kind of dawned on me, I'm not afraid. I'm not worried about that. I, this is nothing compared to South Africa. Um, you know, I was okay. And I realized God has taken me on this journey. And I am, my prayer and my hope is that God would take us on a journey as a nation and as a church that would help us to deal with the fear that we're feeling. It might be a supernatural deliverance or it might be a little by little making choices that help us to engage our fears. Because the question we want to ask, we want to ask ourselves and we need to ask as a body of Christ, what is at stake if we succumb to fear? What is at stake? For me as a young missionary, if I would have given in to that fear, I would have lost out on 25 years of missionary service. I would have lost out on the people that God blessed me to be able to, to impact. I wouldn't be standing here today serving as a missions pastor. If Moses in the Bible had given in to fear when he stood before Pharaoh, a million people would not have been able to go out of slavery and experience freedom. The, the, his, the future of the church was at stake. What is at stake if we as the church here in Shillington, in Pennsylvania, in the United States, what is at stake if we succumb to the spirit or the culture of our age? What is at stake if we continue to have a fear-based political dialogue rather than a people-based dialogue? What is at stake if we fear Muslims more than we love them? What is at stake if we continue to see change as an obstacle rather than an opportunity for the gospel? What is at stake if we continue to put political and cultural agendas over gospel agendas? We have to ask these questions. 
I'm not trying to make a definitive statement here on any issue. I'm just saying, how can we overcome the spirit of fear that is in our land and make an impact on those whom God has put before us? How can we love our neighbors if we're afraid of them? How can we engage in issues of poverty unless we know someone who's going through poverty? How can we engage with issues of race and all their complexities unless we're willing to sit down with somebody of a different race and listen to their story and try to put ourselves in their shoes? Until we're willing to do that, we're going to be bound up by fear. What is at stake if we succumb to fear? The lives of some of these Syrians or Middle Eastern people who are coming to our country, they may be at stake. The poor and needy in our communities, they may be at stake. The diversity of our nation, are we as a church going to participate in this or are we just going to stand on the sidelines? What is at stake? I want to pray this morning. And I want to pray that, uh, about this idea of fear because I think it's real. I've experienced this. I know the power that it can have over us. And I'm not speaking about just, again, this healthy sense of caution. I'm not, I'm not speaking about, of course, we've got to have uh, policies in place in our country for immigration. I'm not talking about this healthy thing. I'm talking about when we tip over and we are controlled by the spirit of fear that is controlling the world around us. We are supposed to be living in a different spirit. We're supposed to be living with a different attitude as a body of Christ. We have to stand against this. And I want to pray for those that, that would just say, yes, I feel like I get sucked in. Whether it's with my kids, whether it's with school things, whether it's with people and the change that's happening, whether it, it, it's with race, that we get sucked in. If that's you today and you say, you know what, I, I, I feel like I regularly tip over, would you just be so bold as to raise your hand? I'm raising my hand because I deal with fear. I'm on a journey, and I'm on a journey that is continuing, and I think I will be on for a long time. And I just want to pray that we would be able to stand against the spirit of the age so that we will have a gospel impact. You can put your hands down. And the way that I want to pray is that one way to fight fear is that we just try to overcome it in our own strength. And sometimes we need to step out. Sometimes we need to motivate ourselves. But I think the true way that we need to overcome fear is we need a deeper revelation of who God is. That we need to put our faith not in something that changes, because that's part of the fear, is this constant change. We need to put ourselves in the one who never changes. And that we focus our eyes on him. That the word tells us that perfect love casts out fear. That we stare into the face of the one who is perfect love and that he begins to change us and help us to step out of this fear that controls our land. So God, I pray in Jesus' name, I pray that you would give us a greater revelation of who you are. I pray that you would give us a revelation, just like you gave to Moses, that you are the I am. That you are the all-powerful one, you are the all-knowing one, you are the all-present one. And that you are a God who is not controlled by fear, but you walk and you are controlled by the spirit of love. 
And just as this lawyer asked the question, who is my neighbor? I pray that we would ask that question and that we would begin to look at those in our past, not with suspicion or judgment or fear, but we would begin to look at them with your eyes. That if they are unbelievers, we would begin to look at them with the compassion of you that would cause us to step outside of our fears, to reach out to the lost, to reach out to those from other nations, to reach out to Muslims in our midst, even to those who are just stuck in humanism, that we would reach out in Jesus' name with the love of Christ and that we would not be ruled by the spirit of fear that is over this land, that we would be different. God, we don't want to live in regret of what we could lose if we give in to fear. So in Jesus' name, I pray for myself and I pray for all of us here today that we would not succumb to a spirit of fear, but that we would walk in your love and your truth and we would look with eyes of love at our community and to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.